Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So our text for this evening comes in the, in the latter portion of John chapter 10. We're gonna turn the corner next week and get into some really neat stuff in John chapter 11 as Jesus is, is moving towards uh, the Passion Week, moving towards his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection. And here we're kind of putting to bed this first phase of Jesus's ministry. I'm gonna go ahead and read the text and then we'll, we'll try to put it in its uh, literary and historical context. This is John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. It says, at that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, have I shown you many good works from the Father? For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier and he remained there. Many came to him and they were saying, John performed no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The word of God for the people of God. Again, out of context, sometimes the language that John is using to communicate to us, especially as 21st century American readers, just seems a bit lofty and it seems a bit uh, ethereal and super spiritual and it's difficult for us to understand what it is that's being communicated. There's a context in this passage, perhaps as good readers of the text, you picked up on some of those cues, but at least one might be um, 
not in the forefront of your thinking. As Jesus is now celebrating a new festival, it talks about the Feast of the, the Dedication or the Festival of the Dedication, which is actually what we know as Hanukkah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Jesus is, is continuing to teach with some of the same themes. Mainly, he's looking back to the Good Shepherd and continuing to talk about how he is the Good Shepherd and his sheep hear his voice. They know him. The shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. The sheep follow wherever he goes. There's this, there's this really intimate relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, and they know each other. Now Jesus is beginning to differentiate between who are his sheep and who is not part of his sheep, namely the religious leaders of the time who John keeps referring to as the Jews. In the book of John, that term there is not certainly meant to be all Jewish individuals, but it's meant more of the leadership at the time who were not grasping or understanding what Jesus was doing and beginning to differentiate the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They were out to get Jesus and these other people, his sheep, are knowing who he is. They understand what he's doing. They understand the works that he is um, performing in the midst of this place to the people. He keeps saying, I am the good shepherd. And even though this uh, festival is a few months later, he keeps coming back to these same themes. So if you're reading from John 10, 1 through the end of the chapter, you're going to see these two passages completely connected thematically, even though there's a chronological separation between when Jesus is celebrating the festival of what is known as tabernacles or booths, this harvest time festival, versus when Jesus shows up again in Jerusalem to, set a, to celebrate the festival of dedication. In order for us to understand the festival of the dedication, now you're not a football crew, you don't really seem to get too excited about food and stuff. Perhaps this will speak to some of you. In order for us to understand the festival of the dedication, we must, as Ross says in his holiday armadillo costume, say, a long time ago, there was a family known as the Maccabees. Okay, so this is what this story is going back to, namely this text in a book called First Maccabees. Now, for the people in the room that are, feel pretty familiar with their Bible, right, this might not be a book that you are familiar with. This is something that was written in the intertestamental period. You've got the Old Testament here in the context around those books that were written. You've got the New Testament over here, the times of Jesus and the, the early church. And in the middle, you have the intertestamental period. Books were still being written. Some of these books had even authoritative uh, qualities and that the Jewish audience would have looked back to them with some sort of... Um, Authority is the best word that I can use here. They look back to them as some sort of uh, references for life and godliness, perhaps. And in 1 Maccabees, it lays out the history of the people around 165-ish or so BC, 170 to 165, in the chapters that we'll be looking at. If you have the Bible app on your phone, version, you can go to a uh, translation such as the New Revised Standard Version or the Common English Bible, and it will give you all of the books of the Apocrypha if you'd like to check them out in your spare time. They are really cool, okay? If you wanna just get really funky uh, in that time period, read Bell and the Dragon. Uh, there's some neat themes going on there. If you just want to nerd out over some history, then Maccabees is where you want to be. And the story of Maccabees, it, it begins after the death of Alexander the Great. 
And the book actually states that officers began to rule over his territory. When Alexander the Great dies, then there's a dissemination of power. And one of those leaders that rises to the fore is known as Antiochus Epiphanes. It says that at this time also there were some renegade Israelites who emerged. And you might think that these renegade Israelites are trying to subvert the power structures, but actually these renegade Israelites are trying to curry the favor of Antiochus Epiphanes because of the power that he has. So what this renegade group of Israelites is doing is going against the law. They're going against their cultural customs of the time in attempt to blend in so that they do not uh, bring about any of the furor of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, they attempt to, to get on his good side, they reject the law, and they begin to join the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Eventually, in chapter one, as it, as it goes through, Antiochus Epiphanes, after destroying some of, of Egypt and taking some of that land, he comes into Jerusalem and overthrows the system of the time. In fact, it says that he, in his arrogance, he enters the temple and carries off the golden altar, the lampstand with all its equipment, the table for the bread of the presence, the sacred cups and bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, and the crowns. And this doesn't make much sense to you or, or really make you care because you're not uh, an Israelite living in 500 BC up, up until the time of Jesus, right? This is, this is the moment in when the tabernacle and the temple and the articles of the tabernacle and the temple, they were so meaningful because this place communicates the very presence of God amongst his people. And what Antiochus Epiphanes is, he is showing up and, and sacking that place, Eventually, it says that two years later, he, to collect tribute from the Judean cities, King Antiochus sent word throughout his empire kingdom that everyone should act like one people, giving up their local customs. The Gentile nations all readily accepted the king's commands, and many Jews also willingly adopted the king's religion. They sacrificed to idols and violated the Sabbath. The king sent messengers carrying letters to Jerusalem and the surrounding towns of Judah. He directed Jews to follow customs that had been unknown in the land, he banned the regular practices of entirely burned offerings, sacrifices, and the drink offerings in the sanctuary. He banned the observance of Sabbath and feast days. The sanctuary and its priests were to be defiled. Try to understand this. He's overthrowing everything that was sacred to these people. And some of the Jewish folks are going along with it so that they do not get hurt that they're not persecuted. They're allowing this to go forward in this moment in time, and it's not good. Everything that they have known is, is, is being threatened by Antiochus Epiphanes. They should build new altars together with sacred precincts and shrines for idols. They should sacrifice pigs and other ritually impure animals. This is the desecration of, of, of the, the temple, the very altar, the, the thing that communicates God's presence with his people, that communicates potential forgiveness, and they're putting pigs on the altar. And the Jewish people, some of them are going along with this. They were supposed to make themselves repulsive to God by doing unclean and improper acts. All of this was intended to make them forget the law and change its regulations. Whoever didn't obey the king would die. And in the story of Maccabees, and if I had an armadillo suit, I'd be wearing it, one family rises up and says, 
not on our watch. This won't happen. You can't just show up in the temple and desecrate the altar. You can't just make a mockery of the God that we have devoted everything to. So one family led by a man named Mattathias begins to go against the rulership of the time because zeal. This is an unknown theme for most people in the Old Testament, but zeal was important uh, for these Old Testament Israelites because when something threatened their religious system, then the zeal of the Lord would overcome them and they would put an end to what was threatening the system. There's a story in Numbers chapter 25 of a guy named Phineas. And the backdrop to this story is God saying, hey, you guys are starting to intermarry with the Moabites. This is not a good thing. Let's move away from that. So Moses talks to the people and tells everybody what's going on. And in this moment, somebody just shows up and it says that he, um, let me give you the wording here. It says that this individual Uh, brought a Midianite woman into his family in open defiance of Moses and all the community of Israel while they were weeping by the entrance of the tent of presence. And Phinehas sees this happening. And what does Phinehas do? He goes and he gets a spear and he runs into the tent and he impales the man and the woman with his spear because zeal of the Lord was moving him to do this. In this time frame, this is how people, some people at least, would think that zeal was moving them towards being violent and destructive. And what we have here is Mattathias rolling up saying, not on my watch. And a similar thing is happening in the, in the book of Maccabees, where they are given these commands to do certain things. And when Mattathias sees somebody obeying the laws of Antiochus Epiphanes, which goes against the law of God, Mattathias is filled with such zeal that he kills this person and starts a revolt with the Jewish people who run into the mountains and attempt to do away with Antiochus Epiphanes. All of this leads into the story of Hanukkah, and we have uh, Mattathias' son, Judas Maccabees, who says at one climactic battle, he says, arm yourselves and be fearless, be ready early in the morning to fight these Gentiles who have gathered here against us to destroy us and our sanctuary. It would be better for us to die fighting than to see the misfortunes of our nation and the sanctuary. These are the things that Judas is saying because he will not stand by and let Antiochus Epiphanes sacrifice pigs on the altar and to force people to disobey the Torah. Judas Maccabees becomes a zealous individual to lead people back to what God is attempting for these folks to do. This all leads finally to the restoration of the temple three years to the day after Antiochus Epiphanes has desecrated the altar, has uh, conducted sacrifices of of pigs and other things to, to, uh, to sully the holiness of the temple. Judas Maccabees and his rogue group of rebels comes back and begins to rebuild and restore the temple. This is the festival of dedication that when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem that everyone had in their minds. They did not have an armadillo suit in their mind, but they all knew about Judas and they all knew about the zeal that he possessed and they all knew about this attempt to not allow the powers that be to overthrow the temple 
and to put their God on the back burner. It was about a small group of people who would roll up and say, not on our watch. And now both of these things, the Good Shepherd text that Jesus is going back to and the festival of the dedication, both of them have a larger context. Namely, it's about kingship. In the Old Testament, to be a good shepherd was to evoke uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, where, where God describes himself as the good shepherd, and another good shepherd would come in his name to lead the people. There was kingship overtones, and this idea of Judas Maccabees overthrowing Antiochus and reestablishing the tabernacle, and then building this political empire, if you will, to bring people back. It was about kingship, or it had some of these political overtones embedded. So when the Pharisees show up, they say, how long, Jesus, will you keep us in suspense? Tell us, are you the guy? Stop all the jokes, stop all the I'm a good shepherd stuff, stop all of the miracles, just tell us right now, are you the person? There's really no good answer for these people because they don't want something new and different to show up in this moment. But they're asking these questions set within the context in John's gospel of the good shepherd and its kingship ties and the festival of dedication and its kingship ties. So some scholars have linked these two things together. Marianne May Thompson says, inasmuch as Hanukkah commemorated the triumph of the Jews over the Syrians, Antiochus Epiphanes and his folks, that led to the temple's reconsecration, it provides an appropriate context for the question whether Jesus is the Messiah who will free Israel from foreign oppression. This story in a throwaway clause for many of us as readers at the time when the festival of the dedication was happening, and it was winter, it's just locating this moment, everyone was thinking about political movements. Everyone was thinking about kingship, and the Pharisees demonstrate this by saying, are you the guy? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you going to bring about the political empire that we need to get out from under the thumb of Roman oppressors? Another scholar, Craig Keener, says, when Jesus' interlocutors demand to know whether he is the Messiah, the calendrical context is political. When was the last time you talked about the calendrical context? <laughs> I would encourage you at some point, students, use that in a paper. Just throw that in there, pepper it in. The calendrical context is political because of this moment in Hanukkah, a celebration of national deliverance when Judas Maccabees led the revolt and said no to the pagan rulers and the reestablishment of God's people. This is on the brain of folks, but Jesus doesn't address those political questions. Tell us plainly, they say. And Jesus launches into the thing that Jesus always launches into, which is a little bit less than a clear answer. Jesus instead, according to Keener, defines his messianic identity in terms of oneness with the Father. I and the Father are one. And he's not really answering the question that could just be a simple yes or no. Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? Well, let me tell you guys something. He's starting to wax a bit philosophical here, but still, when he goes into this idea of oneness with the Father, I and the Father are one. Do you remember what the Jews in this moment do? The Pharisees, do you remember what they do? They want to kill him. They pick up stones. This is the wrong answer for Jesus to, to give to these people, and it, it just evokes the ire, the further frustration of the Pharisees who just want a simple answer, and Jesus isn't really giving it to them, even though he is giving it to them. 
They just don't have the eyes to see it, but it's the wrong answer for them. And Jesus goes on to say, you don't understand it because you're not my sheep. And there are so many theological rabbit trails that we could go down right now. So many things that we could entertain at this moment about this text. In fact, as I was thinking about what it is that we should preach on, for a nerd pastor like me, there's so much. We could unpack some Trinitarian theology and this line of Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. And we could talk about all the heresies in the early church where Jesus and God are either linked together or separated together and all the things that got people thrown into fire, right? Really good times. No, okay, no. We could talk about uh, more the metaphors that Jesus is using. We could talk about that bit where he says, no one will snatch the people out of my hand and what that means, because theologically, some people take that pretty far. Uh, if the words Calvinism mean anything to you, they start going down those aisles. Um, we're certainly not going down those aisles tonight because in fact, I think that there's a, an easier way into this story that might not be overt. Clearly, the only thing that John is wanting to communicate to his, to his audience is this. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Jesus's works are linked to the Father's works. There is nothing that Jesus does that the Father is not also doing. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't do that the Father is also not doing, if that makes any sense. They are linked, they are one. They, their, their work is, is the same work and God has entrusted Jesus to go and to do it. This is what John is wanting to communicate to his audience. However, I wanted to come at this in a, in a different way. You guys can follow all those rabbit trails on your own or we can even meet up for coffee and I can tell you some of the stuff that I've been reading and thinking about. A long time ago, probably about a year or so ago now, I was listening to a former professor of mine, Daniel Kirk, who was talking, um, I say professor, he wasn't really my professor, but we, we weren't really friends either, but we know each other, we're in the same circle, so. No, mm -mm. <laughs> he's a smart guy who I listen to from time to time with rapt attention, okay? Uh, he was on a podcast, I forget which episode it was, on the Bible for Normal People, and he says this, in reading the Gospels, I think it was his episode on Mark, in reading the Gospels, it's important for us not to come away from the passage until we've been able to name how we or our communities that we are a part of tend to do the very sorts of things that Jesus' opponents are doing. So we read the end of John chapter 10 and we say, ah yes, Jesus is God, so cool, that's great. He's a good shepherd and he's leading us, that's great. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon that kind of reached this climax where he knows us, he cares about us. We hear his voice and we go wherever he is leading us. Those things are important. However, it's also important for us to maybe hang out with the, the not so cool fact that when we read this story, we're not Jesus, certainly. We're not the disciples, probably. In more close reality, we are usually functioning as the antagonists of the story, namely the Pharisees, who have no real concept for understanding what Jesus is about because they are so tied to their traditions. Did y'all grow up in the church? You got some traditions that you hold on to? 
some things you like to fight about if somebody starts to invade on your turf a bit? Are there any things that we hold as sacred cows? The name of my network at home is Sacred Cow because my friend and I always thought that we would start a restaurant named Sacred Cow. Side note, I just thought I would share that. Um, I'm like 0 for 20 tonight on humor, but I'm gonna keep trying until we find something that works. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, are there, are there things that, that you've heard that have become really important to you and when somebody starts to chip at them, you get really ticked? So again, we're, we're coming off of this sermon series where all, we used all of these really famous, well-known Old Testament texts and we really read against the grain there. And I don't know if it just speaks to the oddity of our community or if it speaks to the fact that none of you really want to uh, send me a text message or whatever, or have coffee, but I didn't hear a lot of kickback from you, which I think puts us in a, in a strange place. But I do know that some of you in the room, six years ago, if you had heard a sermon on maybe why the flood narrative is better read in light of its ancient Near Eastern context and the other flood stories of the ancient world, or when you heard a sermon about David and Goliath and how there's this rogue text in 2 Samuel that seems to say that someone else, not David, killed Goliath. At some point in your life, and maybe that point is right now, where these things rub against you the wrong way and you say, mm -mm, no, 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 I, I reject that because that makes me uncomfortable. I remember one time I was in Bible college and just, you know, Bible college is a time when you just sow your wild oats, you know? I mean, you're just out there, just going crazy. I was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, home of the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch and the Amish, you know, and just, it was a wild time for me. But I was learning a lot about what I believed and what I didn't believe. And I remember one conversation, this actually was uh, about Calvinism. My roommate says, oh, that's what you think you believe? Read this book. And I was like, nope, not gonna read that because what he was suggesting went against the grain of what I had deeply embedded with no real thought, actually. It just was something that made me comfortable and I accepted it and I didn't want to hold on to it. So when I take Kirk's uh, words at face value here, it's important for us to engage how we might be the Pharisees. What I see them doing is really being zealous for the traditions that they have and Jesus doesn't fit into those categories and they do the only thing that's natural to them, which is stiff arm. They don't allow anything that Jesus is doing to invade their understanding of their religious system, of their interpretation of their sacred text. Oh, if you want to go down a fun rabbit trail. Woo! Remember that bit where Jesus says, uh, are you upset about the works that I'm doing? Um, and they're like, no, it's because you're blaspheming. You're making yourself God. And Jesus quotes scripture from Psalm 82 and says, well, doesn't your book say that, you know, there's other gods? And he starts pushing against it. And you can almost hear like, like the way that Jesus is handling scripture for one is not a way that you would allow me to do. Uh, you'd all walk out in a huff and post on Facebook and say, this guy is a crazy heretic because Jesus is dealing with the text as a first century Jew, which has no real point of contact for us here and now, we don't understand what it is that he's doing, but the Pharisees, they're, they're, 
approaching him in this way that just makes sense in their particular moment. And as I began to think about this, this happens all throughout the New Testament, right? There's this sacred tradition that Jesus is undoing and the people around don't quite know what to do with it. Now, if you were with us maybe a year and a half or so ago, I went nuts and for like 12 weeks or so, we talked about Galatians. And the key word in Galatians is what, friends? Thank you, Suzanne. We talked a lot about circumcision in that little, uh, that little book because what Paul is doing is so radical. For the Jewish people at the time, the things that they held dear were circumcision and food laws and Sabbath keeping. These were the things that meant people were in the covenant. These were the things that meant people were followers of God. And in the book of Galatians, Paul says, they don't matter anymore. And you can hear some people in the room, right? You can hear them say, what? Paul, you're crazy. You're out of here. Paul was a bit progressive for his time, even though he gets a terrible rap for not really being such. Here he's, he's doing away with the things that meant you are in the covenant family, and people did not know how to deal with that. It leads into all of these squabbles in the early church where you have this and this and these people are like, no, you've got to get circumcised. And Paul and his crew are like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter about being circumcised at all. It just matters about Jesus. And they start to hate each other because these people over here, it's all that they ever knew. And Paul begins to push back on this, which leads me in this one reading, in this one angle into this text, as we think about the Pharisees who are putting up a front here saying, we can't deal with you, Jesus, right now because we don't know what sort of box you fit in. The things that you're asking us to do and the things that you're demonstrating look so scary and so dissimilar to what we've had our entire life. We don't know where to put you. And if we, like Daniel, are, are asking, us to place ourselves in the, in the life of Jesus' opponents. What are you defending that Jesus is asking you to lay down because it's impeding what he's attempting to do here and now? What are those things? I hate, I hate where we're going. I'm gonna go here, all right? What are those things, people over 25, on Facebook that you see being shared that your first gut reaction is, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, it might be time for us to change our thinking around some of these issues. Now, for anybody in the room that's got even an amount of blood circulating through their body and hearing some of the words that I'm saying, you might immediately be going to LGBT inclusion, but I do not want you to go there right now because there's a laundry list of things that we as the Christian community push back on that maybe disallows the move of God. The way that we talk about violence, the way that we talk about immigration, the way that we talk about racial relationships, the way that we deny our inherent racism, the way that we attempt 
to defend ourselves against people out here that see things a different way and we won't allow anything they say to come here because we are okay and they are wrong. Perhaps maybe just something to consider. We need to let that guard down and accept what is being said and change our thinking for the sake of Jesus. What is it that we're defending? Is it Jesus or is it the tradition that we have, the tradition that we've been given? Now, hear me out. I am, as a friend would tell me, a professional Christian. Like, it is my job to be a Christian in public and to think about all sorts of things in a way that uh, is coherent with the message of the church. That is not a burden that most of you have to bear. I see students in the room, I see teachers in the room, I see firemen in the room, I see whatever it is that Brian does in the room. <coughs> I know what you do, Brian. And I know that for me, the way that I am attempting to think about these things, it might be very different. And there's a story that has gone on, a decade and a half of my professional Christianity where I'm thinking about certain issues that maybe you guys have not. And sometimes when I talk about them, I come off real casual like, oh yeah, just clearly, you got something going on, just get rid of it and move on. But I've also sat with people in the midst of that sort of movement. And if there's a word to describe that sort of unsettledness, it could be these, dark, lonely, terrifying. And it's not just terrifying in the sense of, it. I can't think of, a, of, a, of an opposite. It's terrifying in the sense of you feel that your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. These are the weightiest of weighty things that you are now thinking through in the midst of wherever it is that you are. Will Jesus still be pleased with me if my proper reaction is to avoid what the Pharisees are doing and to follow this rogue homeless Jewish rabbi who's asking me to do something that I don't know how to do and I'm not even sure that I have the community around me to do it with. But when you're in the midst of those thoughts, is it the tradition and the comfortability that is moving you towards your decisions or is it Jesus? I don't know if I like this slide. Is it God or is it our interpretation of God? Is it the capital W word of God or is it our reading of the word of God? What is it that's driving the bus in the way that we think about things and the progression that we have? Is it representative of the new creation that Jesus is establishing or is it something that is just the easiest option at the time because we don't want to be unsettled? When we begin to compare ourselves to the Pharisees, when we begin to see how they react to Jesus, I would encourage you to be slow from picking up your own stones and saying, how could you miss what's going on? Because I'm pretty convinced that at least I, certainly I, at that time would have seen Jesus and I would have had some Torah to throw at him. 
And I imagine that for my churched folks in the room, maybe you would have too. And the people that we most clearly represent in the text are the ones who are attempting to inhibit the move of God by saying, you don't fit our box. You're not what we picture. You're not who we understand you to be. You're not what we thought that we were predicting. So you're wrong and we are right. Again, I'm hopeful this evening that as we think through our role in this story and as we see the Pharisees and what they're doing and as we begin to maybe make some concessions and say, I probably at times am a bit like that, that we can go one step farther and ask the even more difficult question, which is namely this, God, how do you wanna move me? What is it that you're calling me to do? Who is it that you're calling me to love? Who needs an advocate? Where is injustice in the world and how can I be a part of writing it? My hope tonight is that we can place ourselves in this story, that we can celebrate King Jesus for who he is. If we need to go back to two weeks ago, let me take you there real quick. He is the good shepherd. He will not abandon you. He speaks and you hear his voice. But he's also moving. Are you going with him? May we be a people who boldly go where no man has gone before. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) May we boldly go where Jesus is calling us. May we become the people who are not fighting for traditions, but are fighting for Christ and for his movement here and now. And you say, that's ambiguous, Josh. And I say, I know, because I don't know where you're at. And I don't know who God is calling you to love. And I don't know the people in your life that need an advocate. But I do know this. Our call is to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's start there. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash RestoreSBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.